I'm recording this homily outside of Mass. I will not be delivering this homily at the Mass, which I put together interestingly almost a month ago, but I will make it available on our parish website homepage and homily podcast. For the homily at the Mass, I'll be addressing the coronavirus and how we as a Christian community can look at this situation and be of assistance to the most vulnerable among us. Before I begin this homily, though, I want to acknowledge the main resources for this homily. They come from Dr. Peter Kreit, The Problem of Evil, Chapter 7, and his book, Fundamentals of the Faith, and from Father Robert Spitzer, who is a priest and scientist, and his book, The Light Shines in the Darkness. I just finished, in fact, reading Father Spitzer's book, one of the best books I've ever read on the topic of human suffering particularly for us as Christians. Let's begin. We are continuing our Lenten homily series on proof for God's existence. Today's homily is evil and suffering points to the existence of God. In our first reading for today from Exodus chapter 17, we hear, quote, in those days, in their thirst for water, the people grumbled against Moses saying, Why did you ever make us leave Egypt? Was it just to have us die here of thirst with our children and our livestock? End quote. The people of God were grumbling against God. God has just rescued them from slavery in the land of Egypt, but over time they had forgotten all that God had done to save them. In their long journey toward the promised land, they were suffering. They started to long for slavery again. At least in slavery, they had food and water. Many people have abandoned their faith today because of their mistaken understanding of the relationship between science and faith. We have already covered these topics in previous week's homilies in this Lenten homily series. Another strong reason, though, people abandon their faith is the problem of evil and human suffering. Like God's people wandering in the desert, some people today can't see all that God has done to save them, save them from evil and suffering, especially eternal evil and suffering. They only see their present reality, and they actually desire life without God's plan for them, rather than believing and trusting that even though there is evil in the world and we are suffering, God can save us. And not just despite them, but even through them, because of them. Evil and suffering can certainly be the greatest test of faith, the greatest temptation to unbelief. And it's not just an intellectual objection. We feel it. We live it. That's why the book of Job is so arresting. The problem can be stated very simply. If God is so good... Why is his world so bad? If an all-good, all-wise, all-loving, all-just, and all-powerful God is running the show, why does he seem to be doing such a miserable job of it? Why do bad things happen to good people? The unbeliever who asks that question is usually feeling resentment towards and rebelling against God not just lacking evidence for his existence. 
When you talk to such a person, remember that it is more like talking to a divorce than a skeptical scientist. The reason for unbelief is an unfaithful lover, not an inadequate hypothesis. The unbeliever's problem is not just a soft head, but a hard heart. And the good Christian knows how to let the heart lead the head as well as vice versa. There are multiple ways to address the problem of evil. Recognizing this is a homily, we can't possibly cover all due to time restrictions. So let's try to cover a few of them. First, evil is not a thing. All beings are either the creator or creatures created by the creator. But every good thing created by God is good, according to Genesis. If God is the creator of all things and evil is a thing, then God is the creator of evil and he is to blame for its existence. Now, evil is not a thing, but a wrong choice, or the damage done by a wrong choice. Evil is no more a positive thing than blindness is, but it is just as real in that, like blindness, it impacts us. Second, the origin of evil is not the creator, but the creatures freely choosing sin and selfishness. Take away all sin and selfishness and you would have heaven on earth. Even the remaining physical quote-unquote evils, sufferings, would no longer rankle and embitter us. Saints endure and, and even embrace suffering and death as lovers embrace heroic challenges, but they do not embrace sin. Third, the cause of physical evil is spiritual evil. The cause of suffering is sin. After Genesis tells the story of the good God creating a good world and next answers the obvious question, where did evil come from? We learn this from the deep truths revealed in the story of the fall of mankind. In essence, using our free will, and choosing sin and selfishness, our rebellion against God is a rebellion against the source of all life, and therefore all joy, peace, goodness, authentic love, hope, and ultimately, it is a rebellion against not only life now, but life eternal. Furthermore, when a human soul rebels against God, it affects not only the soul and the hope for eternal life, it affects the body now. We are embodied souls. We are not body and soul. We are both. We are one. Thus, when we use our freedom to spiritually sin, when we allow spiritual evil and suffering, it also causes physical evil, physical suffering. And not only upon us, but upon others, for we are all connected. The connection between spiritual evil and physical evil has to be as close as the connection between the two things they affect most, human souls and human bodies. So the body must share in the soul's inevitable punishment. Punishment as natural and unavoidable as broken bones from jumping off a cliff or a sick stomach from eating rotten food rather than a punishment as artificial and external 
as a grade for a course or a slap on the hands for taking the cookies. Meaning, God doesn't cause our physical suffering. We do, as individuals and as a human society, living for millennia in a fallen world, fallen by our own human hands. God doesn't condemn us. We condemn ourselves, and we hurt others when we misuse our freedom and actions for selfish and simple purposes. Now, one might object here. If the origin of evil is human free will, and God is the origin of free will, isn't God the origin of evil? Only as parents are the origin of the misdeeds their children commit by being the origin of their children. The all-powerful God gave us a share in his power to choose freely. Would we prefer that he had not and had made us robots rather than free human beings? In this case, there would be no love. Fourth, part of the problem of evil is the most important part, how to resolve the problem in practice, not just in theory, in life, not just in thought. God's solution to the problem of evil is his son, Jesus Christ. The Father's love sent his son to die for us, to defeat the power of evil in human nature. That's the heart of the Christian story. We do not worship a deistic God, an absentee landlord who ignores his slum. We worship a garbage man God, who came right down into our worst garbage to save us from it. How do we get God off the hook for allowing evil? God is not off the hook. God is the hook. That's the point of a crucifixion. The cross is God's part of the practical solution to evil in our world. Our part, according to the same gospel, is to repent to believe, to open ourselves to the love of God, to love God and trust in him, and to work with God in fighting evil by the power of our freedom and the ability to love like God. The king has invaded our world, but he needs an army, you and I and so many others, to finish the job. This is what we are supposed to be doing with our free will to accomplish this, rather than our own self-aggrandizement. A few other thoughts. What about the objection? Why do bad things happen to good people? Well, who's to say that any of us is quote-unquote good? I mean, let's be blunt for a moment and honest. The best people are the ones who actually most are most reluctant to call themselves good. Sinners think they are saints, but saints know they are sinners. We are sinners, all. We are not good, certainly not in comparison to God. In fact, the best man who ever lived on this earth once said, no one is good but God alone. And that man was the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Only God is truly good, 
without sin. Love itself, truly selfless and self-giving, honest and only concerned about others. And look what we did to this good God. We killed him. This is what we do to good people and even to ourselves. God doesn't do this. The only one who was truly good was God. And he had the worst evil committed against him. As people who follow him, who try to be like him in this world, do any of us Christians expect to be exempted from what happened to him? Another thought. Who's to say suffering is all bad? Suffering produces saints, even joyful saints. A life without suffering, a life of deprivation and getting everything you want, produces spoiled brats and tyrants. Rabbi Abraham Heschel says simply, quote, The man who has not suffered, what can he possibly know anyways? Unquote. The fallen world, both physically and spiritually, and the impending reality of death in this imperfect world incites us to choose the way in which we are going to live in the short time we have in the physical world. Are we going to accumulate things for ourselves, aggrandize ourselves, dominate others for the sake of our personal benefit, and worship ourselves? Vanity? Or will we use our lives, our gifts, our resources to help others, edify others, contribute to others, show compassion to others, and worship the true God? Without suffering and death, these fundamental choices and identity decisions could be indefinitely delayed, allowing us to avoid the critical decisions constituting our personal and eternal identity. In addition, living in a world where people perpetuate and feed evil and there is suffering, both at the hands of other people and even the forces of nature, such realities can lead us to humility, empathy, and compassion, recognizing the needs of others and make contributions and build systems, structures, and cultures for the common good. Living in such a world can shock us out of superficial living, calling us to look for something more, something contributive, loving, transcendent. We come to realize that we're not God and realize our need for God. Suffering can lead us to salvation, to the God of the cross, who came to join us and called us to unite our suffering to his suffering for our own salvation and the salvation of others. Is suffering all bad? No. Remember what St. Paul taught us in Romans 8, 28. For those who love God, all things work together for good according to God's purposes. How about natural evils? like natural disasters, like hurricanes. Well, from our perspective, especially after we see many die and the massive loss of property, we ask, where is God in all of this? Why didn't he step in and stop it? 
While the suffering is certainly real, our perspective may be limited and we may not understand fully the ways of God. But we may not even fully grasp how the earth works. Scientists tell us that hurricanes and tsunamis are absolutely essential to life on earth. For instance, in one part of the world, the earth is heating up and other parts need fresh water. Some of the salt water from the ocean is evaporated and carried in a strong storm to the shores of lands that need not salt water, but fresh water in the form of rain for their lakes and rivers, dry land and plant and animal life. The atmosphere is also cleansed during these strong storms and a host of other necessary work is done, which has all been happening on this earth long before humanity arrived. The same is true of volcanoes and the seismic shifts of the earth's plates during earthquakes and forest fires and so on, all necessary for life on earth. Unfortunately, though, we build cities on fault lines and along coastlines. We know these forces of nature will hit us. Then we blame God for not stopping them or we use these acts as proofs that God does not exist. How does that make sense? A final thought. Who's to say we have to know all God's reasons? Whoever promised us all the answers? Animals can't understand much about us. Why should we be able to understand everything about God? At some point, we have to humbly acknowledge that we lack an eternal perspective. We can't see the whole picture of our lives or the lives of other people, let alone God's will and his ways. Therefore, we must learn to trust, even though we can't see. Think of it this way. Follow this. A child on the 10th story of a burning building cannot see the firefighters with their safety net on the streets because of the flames and because of the smoke. They call up, jump, we'll catch you, trust us. The child objects, but I can't see you. The firefighter replies, that's all right, I can see you. We are like that child. Evil or suffering is like the fire. It can come out of nowhere. We are rightly afraid of it. It has the power to destroy us. The smoke is like our ignorance, our lack of understanding, our fears and a host of other human emotions that react to the presence of evil and suffering. Like smoke, we often can't see through it to the other side. God is like the firefighter. He is calling out to us. He can see us. He can see a way through our pain and the evil that wants to consume us. He calls us to trust him. You can't see me, but I can see you. Jump. Jesus, his son, is the safety net. He holds out Jesus. God holds Jesus out to us across our lives and across all space and time. If we jump into the arms of Jesus, we, he will indeed catch us. 
He will help us time and time again escape evil in our world, evil in our own hearts, and even the evil in the hearts of others. There are variety of ways and means that he can save us. Sometimes he literally, physically saves us or heals us. Other times he does this in some form or another, but over time. But also, there are other ways. He strengthens us to face the challenges that we encounter with our sins and the sins of other people. He builds in us the virtues of perseverance and endurance when we are struggling. When faced with suffering, we are humbled and call out to him in our need, and we grow closer to him, not distant. We learn over and over again how to trust him, have faith in him, and then get to see how he helps us. From there, our hearts grow in gratitude, and we fall more deeply in love with him. We become the persons that reflect his image and likeness more, and we are able to make a positive difference in the lives of so many others who are also experiencing the fires of evil and suffering in this world. We become the voice of God that calls others to jump into the arms of God. And at some point then in our lives, God finally calls us to make the final jump from suffering and death into the eternal embrace of his son. In our first reading from today, from Exodus 17, the people of God were grumbling against God. What they were experiencing in the desert of their lives, we will experience in the deserts of our lives. The way out of the desert and into the promise that God offers us is not through grumbling, not through rebellion, and not by turning back into the slavery to the powers of this world. The way through it is trust. Trust in God as he calls out to us across our lives, both during the good and bad times, and allow him to lead us through the deserts of this world, the fires and the smoke, the suffering and the evils, and into the arms of love itself, the love of his son. Along the way, knowing and living this love and trust, we can help others with this same love and trust until we are all in the internal embrace of a God who rescues us from suffering and evil forever.